Yeah, good afternoon again, family. So glad to be with you here today. And yes, it is our last Sunday in our Summer in the Psalms uh, series. This is our fifth annual Summer in the Psalms where we kind of hit pause on what we've been doing throughout the year and we spend the summer in the Psalms, but it's our first summer uh, just going through one Psalm, and that's because for some crazy harebrained uh, reason, uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to go through Psalm 119. And uh, I, I'm being a little bit facetious and I'm joking when I say some crazy harebrained idea. This has been a wonderful uh, summer in the Psalms as we have gone through Psalm 119 together. Uh, but it has been, it has been work. It has been a job. Uh, to go through this psalm together. It is as uh, wide as it is long. Um, its breadth is, is as wide as its height, however you want to look at it, uh, but it has been a good thing. And so uh, today we are in our last two stanzas of Psalm 119, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 119, verses 161 through 176. Psalm 119, 161 through 176. And when you find it, I invite you to stand with me. We'll read this out loud together. And at the end of that reading, I will say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond in true praise by saying thanks be to God. Psalm 119, verses 161 through 176. Let's read together. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word. For all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me. For I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we made it. That was the end of Psalm 119. Uh, as we uh, have thought about and prayed about and studied for this last uh, week in Psalm 119, I can't help but think of it as a journey. Um, and I'm not the only one. Uh, I wanted to read this to you. This is a fairly uh, long excerpt from Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon on Psalm 119 as he came to the end of Psalm 119 and see if 
uh, his experience might mirror and reflect our own. Listen to what he says. Uh, Mind you, this is Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers in the uh, London Tabernacle in the 1800s. This is what he had to say. I have been bewildered in the expanse of the 119th Psalm. Its dimensions and its depth alike overcame me. It spread itself out before me like a vast rolling prairie to which I could see no bound. And this alone created a feeling of dismay. Its expanse was unbroken by a bluff or headland, and hence it threatened a monotonous task, although the fear has not been realized. This marvelous poem seemed to me a great sea of holy teaching, moving in its many verses, wave upon wave, all together without an island of special and remarkable statement to break it up. I confess I hesitated to launch upon it. Other psalms have been mere lakes, but this is the main ocean. It is a continent of sacred thought, every inch of which is fertile as the garden of the Lord. It is an amazing level of abundance, a mighty stretch of harvest fields. I have now crossed the great plain for myself, but not without persevering, and I will add, pleasurable toil. Several great authors have traversed this region and left their tracks behind them, and so far the journey has been all the easier for me, but yet to me and to my helpers, it has been no mean feat of patient authorship and research. This great psalm is a book in itself. Instead of being one among many psalms, it is worthy to be set forth by itself as a poem of surpassing excellence. Those who have never studied it may pronounce it commonplace and complain of its repetitions. But to the thoughtful student, it is like the great deep full, so as never to be measured, and varied, so as never to weary the eye. Its depth is as great as its length. Its mystery, not set forth as mystery, but concealed beneath the simplest statements. May I say that it is experience allowed to prattle, to preach, to praise, and to pray like a child prophet in his own father's house. And I could not say it better. Um, I told Joel this week, I remembered a movie that I had seen growing up. It was a Disney film. I think it was one of Reese Witherspoon's first films called Far From Home. And it took place in Africa uh, where she, with a couple of friends, ends up crossing the Kalahari Desert. And if you had to take a drone and fly back over the path that they took in the Kalahari Desert, you would find that they did not, uh, in their little journey, survey the vast expanse of the desert, but made one little trail uh, through to the end. And I feel like that's kind of what we have done with Psalm 119. There is still so much there that we haven't been able to see yet, so much still to explore and to find and to mine its treasures. Uh, we've merely traced a line through it this summer. And so I say that to encourage you not to think, well, we, we did it, we made it through Psalm 119, I can cross that one off the list and never have to go back there again. 
Uh, rather, I would encourage you to revisit it as often as you may and find new and wonderful uh, treasures and mysteries every time that you do. Amen? Amen. Uh, today, as a concluding thought, I want to just sort of overview everything that we've done, uh, spend a little bit of time on the individual verses of these last two stanzas, and then have some concluding thoughts for us as we finish up Psalm 119 together. I want to remind you that the book of Psalms is a book of songs. Each one of them, the 150 Psalms, uh, are written as songs that were not meant to just be read or recited, but to be sung. That's why, uh, even though it has been a labor, it's been a labor of love each week to sing them together. Uh, and in a way that is foreign, but I hope foreign enough that it grabs the attention uh, and and causes us to think a little more deeply about the words that we have by that time read and heard preached and now sung together. And as songs which are addressed, devoted, and sung to God, they are at once songs and prayers. The book of Psalms is divided into five books. You can kind of think of it as a box set. And Psalm 119 finds its setting in the middle of that fifth and final book, which has been called the King's Celebration of God's Salvation. And so over the last several weeks, we've seen a particular refrain that has come up again and again, uh, sometimes articulated a little differently, but most simply a few weeks ago, we heard it just straight up, save me, O Lord, right? Later it has been, I hope for, or I even today, I long for your salvation. And so in this book, which has been called The King's Celebration of God's Salvation, it fits neatly there as this prayer of requesting and petitioning God's saving power, His salvation in the psalmist's life. In Psalm 119, as we have seen, <clears throat> scholars uh, since Old Testament times have argued, uh, but out of the 176 verses, in at least its original language in the Hebrew, it is said that 171 out of 176 individual verses uh, speak of God's Word explicitly. Uh, in the remaining verses, there's argument by some Old Testament scholars that they implicitly uh, speak of God's Word. And so this psalm is a beautiful psalm of praise to God for His Word, for Scripture, for the Bible. And it is written in very creative fashion. We don't see it in the English as such, but in the original Hebrew, the psalm is divided into 22 sections, each one of those 22 sections representing one of the 22 Hebrew letters in their alphabet. With each section and each line in that section beginning with the next subsequent letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so, as such, you, you begin to think about the creativity that it took. Yes, 
God-breathed, inspired Word of God. But when God worked through men to pen the, the words of Scripture, He did not they were not automatons. He did not take them over and possess them where their eyes would roll in the back of their head and, and they would just stick their hand out with a, with a, with a quill and ink and paper and, and God would like take over their hand and write. That is not what happened. That is not the way that God works. Instead of possessing, what does God do? Demons possess. God indwells. And when He indwells, that person who has been corrupted by sin is by God's power able to then begin to exist, not perfectly, but begin to exist more fully into that person that they were created and intended to be from the very beginning. So God did not override the individual as they pin the words of Scripture, but rather through inspiration, harnessed their own creativity that He Himself had encoded and built into them so that they might pin the words of Scripture that came from the overflow of their own heart inspired by God as the authoritative Word of God. This is why we've talked about before. You can read John's Gospel and his letters in the epistles in the New Testament and you say, wait a minute, these things go together. I can kind of see a similarity in the the voice of this author through these different books. Paul the same way throughout his Pauline epistles in the New Testament. Luke in his Gospel. And then again in the book of Acts. And why uh, many have uh, questioned other places as well that perhaps Luke has written. And, and so you begin to see and hear the voice of the author. Similarly, in the Psalms, when you read enough of them and you see David, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David, and you start to compare those different Psalms of David together, you begin to see similar patterns and voicings that are happening there. And so God harnessed the creativity that He had built into the author. And so the author sat down and, and what a thing. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write octaves of stanzas to God, to the praise of God for His Word, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna assign a letter of the alphabet to each one of them and, and, and pin this, uh, 22 stanza poem to the praise of God and His Word. That's incredible. Uh, again, because it's such a long psalm and, and the restrictions that the psalmist gave to himself in writing it, many believe that this psalm was written over a great deal of time. Not only that, but as we saw as uh, recently as last week, there was a sense in which the psalm begins with a sense of youthfulness and perhaps immaturity and ends at a place of, now that I have given my life to the Word of God, these are the things that I now see and can testify to. And again, attributing this psalm to King David in light of the command of God for the kings to spend time every day hand-copying the Torah uh, begins to make a lot of sense and have a lot of credibility. But even though it was the psalmist who sat down and with an overflow of his heart put pen to paper and penned these psalms, there is a real sense in which every single one of us as believers should take ownership of those thoughts and prayers of this psalm and all of the psalms and make them our own. 
such that I would encourage you that when you read through the Psalms and you read through it the first time and, 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 and get through the end of it, go back and try to pray that Psalm back to the Lord in your own words. Put it in your own words. Put your own experiences into it and begin to let the words of that Psalm inform how you turn and pray to God. And the reason you can do this is because this psalm, as well as the others, fits every aspect of our lives as believers and Christians. There is nothing in our lives that Psalm 119 does not speak to in some way. It's a prayer that includes many different elements. Throughout our time in Psalm 119, we've seen prayers of praise. Uh, examples would be verses 45 through 48. We've seen prayers of lament. Uh, verses 81 through 88. We've seen prayers of vindication, verses 132 through 134. We've seen prayers uh, asking God for obedience or making commitments to obedience, such as verses 57 through 64. And we've even seen petitions for wisdom in verses 33 through 40. With such wide scope, Psalm 119 uh, should not be relegated to the devoted in the annals of time gone by or time past. I think so often we come to something like Psalm 119 and we almost have a heart that we would have if we're going through a museum and we see uh, these different scriptures that are there and they're laid out for us and we kind of look at them and turn them over and almost have a heart that says something like, oh, isn't it cute that they really liked this back then? Isn't that precious? But that's not what it should do for us. Instead, our own, and what museums are meant to actually do in the best senses, what should actually happen is instead of going, oh, isn't that cute, isn't that precious? It should be a, a, an excitement in, of our own appreciation and devotion uh, to this psalm. And, and, and our devotion to this psalm ought to be renewed in the present time and provide fuel for our own prayers of praise and lament and petition for God's grace for everything needful in our lives. I wonder, uh, before this summer in Psalm 119, how many of us uh, would have cared if it had been... Now, we, now let, me, let me rephrase. We may have cared in a fundamental sense whether or not someone had ripped Psalm 119 out of our Bibles. Because you just don't do that. Right? So we, we, we may have cared in a fundamental sense. Like, that's wrong. Don't do that. Don't rip stuff out of the Bible. But would we have really cared? Would, or maybe a better way of saying it is, would we have noticed if someone had ripped Psalm 119 out of our Bibles? Whereas, as we've already mentioned several times, Martin Luther said that he would not give up Psalm 119 in exchange for the whole world. In other words, if he was put in a position uh, like Jesus with the tempter saying, here, here are all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll just bow to me. But instead of bow to me, it was just, hey, give up Psalm 119. Martin Luther said he wouldn't do it. He would not give up Psalm 119 for exchange, uh, in exchange for the whole world. 
But I wonder what things are we willing to give up at the slightest degree of discomfort or persecution? How easily will we not just abandon Psalm 119, but who knows how many other number of passages in Scripture that we might give up for the sake of comfort or to alleviate persecution. Now, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm and the longest chapter of the Bible. And fittingly, as such, it is filled with praise to God for His Word and His law. It is literally gushing with adoration for the Word and law of God. The praise This praise for God's Word will build to such a degree, as we saw several weeks ago, the psalmist will burst forth in verse 97 saying, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And this verse has been called the heart of Psalm 119. And we've seen that over the last 12 weeks. Over and over and over again, the psalmist is bursting forth with love for God's Word. This verse expresses succinctly what all the other verses expound. The psalmist loves the law of the Lord and has made it the overwhelming preoccupation of his life to meditate on it constantly, whereby he may be able to be more closely acquainted with the Lord of the law. How do we make sure that when we get to heaven, God is not a stranger to us by spending time in His revealed Word. This is where He has revealed Himself to us. Like the psalmist, we do not worship the Bible, right? This is not to say let's worship Scripture, but to make use of Scripture that we might more fully worship God, the God of the Bible who reveals Himself to us there. Psalm 119 shows us how we might through our devotion to the Word of God, focus on the person of God. This shows us how Scripture is supposed to work for us. We use the Scripture like a lens. We're able to lift it up to our spiritual eyes that we might be able to view God, to view ourselves and the world that He has made in a more perfect way. Whether like a telescope, or a microscope to see in macro and in micro those things which to our naked eye spiritually remain a mystery. Scripture helps us to begin to decode that mystery. Because God has revealed Himself generally to all through the book of nature, but He has given a special revelation of Himself through the book of Scripture. And so if you want to know God, you must, yes, look at nature, but then most especially look at Scripture. The psalmist of Psalm 119 delights in the God he sees through the lens of Scripture. And we also, by tracing his path and following what he has written, can find that same delight Uh, of God through the lens of Scripture. God Himself, His Word, His Law, His Will explained and expounded there. 
And what did the psalmist find through all of these 176 verses proclaiming the praises of God and His Word? That if he would follow God's Word, the blessedness that he prayed for in verses 1 through 3 at the beginning of the psalm would be his. A rewarding life. Is that not what everyone wants? Truly, this is happiness and blessing. The blessedness that Psalm 119 verses 1 through 3 speaks to of the beatitudes of the psalm. There is blessing in the law of the Lord. And this is the natural contrast that we spoke of at the beginning of our time. That we will see and have seen in Psalm 119 with the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, the the world that we live in today. That we are currently living in, in our own society where we see rather than a submission to God's word, his will and his way, we see instead what? A casting off of restraint. A complete giving over to the self, to selfishness and disobedience. A moving back of the ancient boundary markers and a rejection of what God has revealed in His Word to be the truest true, the best good, and the most majestic beauty. And so instead of of embracing God's truth and goodness and beauty, what has happened Exactly what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And what does Paul say? He says, for this reason, what God gave them up. Because of this, he says, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. Things that aren't even worthy of talking about in polite company. God says He gave them up to those dishonorable passions that they might inherit in their bodies the penalty for that sin. You see, it's the law of God that leads us away from the destructive paths of the world and the flesh and the devil into the straight and narrow way of following after Jesus, the Lord of life, who came and by His death and resurrection gave us life and that life more abundantly. Amen? Full of joy and of hope and of peace. That's what the law of God leads to. People want to say, God, such a killjoy. All these rules, you're looking at it the wrong way. The law of the Lord is a treasure map to joy, to peace, to hope, to life. And the psalmist not only sees this, but has experienced it both in the negative and the positive. As we've gone through it, we've seen he's forsaken the law of the Lord and he's reaped the consequences of those actions. And then he has turned and been restored and followed the way of the Lord and instead reaped rewards over and against the consequences that he also once reaped. Such that we have experienced the same thing, have we not? Paul talks about how that uh, we once were those who had exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we start wagging our finger at everyone else and Paul carries on. What does he say? And such were some of you. Such were some of you, he says. And then there is this glorious but in the Scriptures. So often, those little pauses after the comma are filled with so much hope. Because what does Paul say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that you could turn back to those things again? No. So that you could be freed to pursue the life, peace, hope, and joy of the Lord in following after Christ instead of after your own flesh. And the psalmist sees this and has experienced this. And that at this point, he has given himself to God's law for years and found the blessedness that comes from years of that investment. And he is able to say with passion, Oh, how I love thy law. So let's look at our text for today quickly. Picking up in verse 161. And what does he say? We find yet again that our psalmist is experiencing affliction. He says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. It's one thing to be at odds with your neighbor. Why? Because your neighbor is just a fellow citizen like yourself. It's one thing to stand accused by a fellow citizen. But when your adversary is the prince, or worse, the prince and all of his aristocratic friends, the prospect of a net positive resolution becomes about as likely as finding buried treasure in your own backyard. And so the psalmist here is is in a place where he's not just being persecuted, but he's being persecuted by those who are in positions of authority. This is an overwhelming scenario. If we had to think about it ourselves today, if, if someone in position of authority in our government today had to come and, and, and bring accusation against one of us in here today, that would be a very daunting scenario. Uh, we might find ourselves very quickly having to go and, and uh, seek help, whether by therapy or some other uh, kind of help, just to deal with the stress that something like that might bring into our life, possibly. But even though this is happening, where is the psalmist at? He says, but my heart stands in awe of your words. In the midst of his persecution, The psalmist's heart is in awe of God's words rather than being, or more likely allowing himself to be, overwhelmed by his disadvantageous circumstances. It's something that we can do to begin to do. He is being persecuted by princes, likely how? By their words. At some level, there are accusations that are being leveled against him. This is not an active fight. Otherwise, it's not like, you know, he's in the middle, he's got his sword drawn shield and he's fighting. He's like, hey, time out. Wait a minute. Can you just wait till I write this down real quick? 
Oh God, princes are persecuting me. That's not the kind of persecution that's happening. Likely it's some kind of accusation that's being leveled against David, which means what? It is words that are coming against him. And so what is he doing? In his own heart, he is giving more weight and more credibility to the words of God instead of the words of his adversaries. Even though those adversaries carry authority, even though those adversaries are, are in positions of prestige and honor, instead of allowing all the weight to be in the category of his adversaries, he's turning and he's saying, God, your words mean more to me than their words do. And what does that do in his heart? He says, well then, if that, if his words matter more to me than their words, I can stand firm. I can be resolute. I can, as he say, stand in awe of your words. And so whether we are speaking of physical and natural adversaries that may come and levy uh, accusations against us, fellow image bearers, or if we're speaking of the adversary himself, the accuser, we can look at the promises of God's Word. We can assign more value to God's Word in our own estimation than we do to the words of our adversaries. We're reminded of the words of the preacher in Hebrews when he speaks how that the blood of Jesus itself speaks a better word. In other words, what? It has more value. It's able to cancel out the accusations of the accuser against us. And so I would encourage you today, as I encourage myself, to assign more value to God's Word, to His words, than we do to those who level accusations against us. Whether they be fellow image bearers, or even the accusations of Satan himself. And when we do, what we will find is if there is more value on the side of God and His Word, then we will be able to be resolute no matter how many accusations come. Think of Nehemiah. He was someone in Scripture who really had to deal with the accusations of adversaries, of Sanballat and all his friends. And what does he do? He stands resolute because God had given him a promise. He assigned greater value to God and His Word instead of the word of His accusers. Otherwise, what would he have done? Instead of picking up a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other to stand in the gap and make sure the wall got built, he would have abandoned the work altogether. And that's what the enemy of your soul wants. He wants you to abandon the work that God has called you to do and listen to Him instead of listening to God. Never forget that the first attack on humanity came from a false teacher. It was words of the serpent that came as an attack in the Garden of Eden. And it was a false teaching that Eve listened to and assigned more value to the words of the serpent instead of the promise 
of God that He had made to Adam and Eve there. Amen? And so what happens if we're able to stand resolute, then something happens suddenly where once we may have been in fear because of our persecutors, once we may have been standing there not knowing, uncertain what's going on, but now when you find a place of resoluteness, what begins to happen? You begin to have joy. And I know this is a, a, a probably a terrible example, but I grew up in the sticks. Okay. And so when we would go to my grandpa's farm, we had a game that we loved to play with my cousins, or at least they loved to play it, uh, especially when I was little, uh, called King of the Mountain. And we would go into the barn up on the haystacks and we would literally try to attack one another and stand, uh, on the haystack and be King of the Mountain. And in, and I was a very small person, still am. And, uh, and so when I was young and small, it was even worse. My cousins could just toss me. It was no problem at all. But it was amazing. I'll never forget the first time that I finally got some meat on my bones and I'd grown up a little bit and I got to the top of that haystack and suddenly they weren't pulling me and throwing me off as fast and something began to happen. I started to laugh. It was amazing. I stood resolute at the top as king of the mountain. And what happens when you find yourself in a position, even of being under attack, but you are standing resolute, joy comes. And so the psalmist, what does he say? I rejoice at your word. And listen to this, like one who finds great spoil. And the key word there is find, find great spoil. Spoil is normally attributed to what a warrior gains by defeating his foe. It, it is his just reward by conquering his enemy. But to find spoil means what? I get all of the benefit without any of the risk or the scars that go with it. There is an example of this in Scripture in 2 Kings chapter 7 where the city of the Lord is under siege the king has been disobedient uh, and and he's not believed the word of the Lord. He has assigned uh, more value to the enemy than to God. And the word of the Lord comes to the prophet and says, hey, tomorrow you're never going to believe it. Everything that's so expensive right now, because think about it, a very close and confined economy that is limited to one city that is under siege with no ability to import or export or bring in new goods or, or money. You have only what is contained in the city. So as soon as you close those doors and bar up the gate to the city, you have now restricted your economy to the borders of that city. And so what happens? The value of everything goes straight up to the top. And as those goods begin to get consumed, that value just begins to climb and climb. It's inflation. And now they're at a point, they've been under siege and everything is so expensive that just buying a loaf of bread is prohibitively expensive for the common people in the city. And the word of the Lord comes and says, hey, tomorrow... You won't even be able to get, you won't even be able to give your bread away. That's how cheap it's going to be. And the king doesn't believe the word of the Lord, but God goes to battle for them. There were lepers outside of the city who weren't allowed inside because they were lepers. They're starving. 
because they were dependent upon the people in the city and their benevolence to come and feed them because they couldn't work for themselves. And so they're like, what should we do? Well, we're starving. If we go in the city, they're starving and I don't even know if we'll get in and we'll die. At least if we go to the enemy's camp, maybe we can sneak around and grab something, but if they catch us, what? who cares? We're just going to die anyways. And in other words, it's like, let's at least die trying to get something. And so they go sneaking up on the enemy's camp. They keep like listening. You hear anything? You hear? I don't hear anything. It's quiet. It's really weirdly quiet. What's going on? And they walk in and the enemy's camp has been utterly deserted. But they left everything behind. And so these lepers are like, party! They just like camp out. They're cooking up all the food. They're eating it all. They're like, hey, what happens if someone comes? They're going to catch us here. Let's go hide this away. So they start moving it and hiding some of it away until finally they're like, hey, all of our friends and family are still in fear for their lives back in the city. They don't know what's happened. Starting to feel kind of bad. Maybe we should tell them. Anyways, they go back. They tell them. People come out. The king who disbelieved the word of the Lord, who assigned more value to the enemy's word instead of God's word, stood in the gate and was trampled by the people running out to go and get the spoils that they found and didn't have to fight for. What kind of joy do you think happened on that day when suddenly the economy became so great that bread was just everywhere. What they couldn't, they couldn't even sell enough to buy the day before. Suddenly, everyone has more than enough. That is the provision of the Lord. Amen? And so the psalmist says that he hates falsehood, but he loves the law of God. Again, this love for God's law is coming up. I love your lots. And here it says, uh, Seven times a day, verse 164, I praise you for your righteous rules. I praise you for your righteous rules. Seven times a day. Uh, that seems like, wow, seven times a day. Some of us probably have trouble praising God once a day, never mind one day in seven. And yet the psalmist is saying, I praise you seven times a day. This is not so that you can get out your little abacus and make sure that you do praise God seven times. But like so often in Scripture, this word seven is being used, this number seven is being used to show a completeness, uh, an overflowing. Uh, because at seven, you normally begin again and start over. And, and, and so there's a sense in which his praise is unending to the Lord. It's babbling forth like a babbling brook. God, I'm never going to stop praising you for your righteous rules. And he finds in his love uh, for God's law and his hatred of falsehood that he has inherited great peace. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. This is not just simple peace, but great peace, abundant peace, like the spoils of the uh, lepers as they went into that camp. More than enough. Verse 
but with qualification, right? It's not just peace that's being doled out to everyone. Who inherits the peace? Those who love God's law. And then it says this, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. So if we go back and we see that he loves God's law, first of all, in his heart, but then he also does God's law. He does keep the commandments of the Lord. We see these two things have to go together. It is not enough to do good. We must also love good. It's not enough to just do the right thing. We have to love the right thing. Otherwise, it really is not good or right that we have done. Because we have done whatever we've done to serve ourselves rather than to serve God. Because we didn't actually love the goodness. We didn't love the righteousness that those uh, commandments required. I, I did miss something. I'm sorry, that's why I stumbled around here for a second. I want to go back to peace. Great peace have those who love your law. And I just want to mention this quickly. Many people sacrifice truth to gain what they think is peace. We all want peace at the end of the day. Nobody, nobody desires to be in constant conflict. Uh, we all want peace. But we are often tempted or enticed to give up truth in order to gain what we think is peace from our enemies or our adversaries or our foes. But this is not true peace. This is compromise. When you have to give up truth in order to get what someone is promising you is peace, that is not real peace. That is merely compromise. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19, God commands His people to love truth and peace. And we should never give up truth for the sake of peace. This is about the same as giving up liberty for safety. To do either is never peaceful or safe. It is to embrace the tyranny of others. And we are called to submit to one King, and that is Christ, the King of Kings, the Word of Truth, and He who has been called in Isaiah the Prince of Peace. Amen? Moving on to verse 166, the psalmist says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. So again, he is loving the commands of God and doing them. We must not divorce those two things. It's one thing, oh, I love the law of the Lord. I love, oh yeah, the law of the Lord's great. It's wonderful. And then you never do what he says. Jesus had something to say about that. You say you love me, but you do not what I command. Jesus says what? There's no love there. For if you love me, you would do what I commanded you to do. On the flip side, if we do all of the commands, but have no love in our heart for God or for those commands, all we're doing is serving ourselves rather than God. And that is where the Pharisees and the scribes were and what caused them even to 
go after Jesus in the ways that we'll see when we jump back into Mark's Gospel next week. Instead, we need to marry the love of God's law and the keeping of His commandments in our hearts and with our hands and feet and mouth and minds and all of our bodies. The psalmist says, I hope for your salvation and I do your commandments. In the middle of hoping for God's saving grace, he does not forsake what God has commanded him to do, but he remains steadfast there in his commandments. He says, my soul keeps your testimonies. Again, he's not merely outwardly keeping them, but inwardly keeping them as well. This is, uh, as the old saying uh, goes, or perhaps the old Calvin and Hobbes uh, cartoon, if you ever uh, were into that, you might see Calvin sitting uh, on the chair uh, with a little bubble that says something to the effect of, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? That's the opposite of what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, God, you've commanded me what to do. I'm not only doing it externally, I'm loving your command and you in that command on the inside as well. It's not enough to merely acquiesce externally. We must submit to God in our hearts as well as with our hands and our feet and our mouth and our minds and all of our bodies. And so he says, I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Verse 168, this week in our Sunday morning email, I included an article from Derek Thomas. Uh, excuse me, not from Derek Thomas. I did include an article from Derek Thomas. That's not the one I'm trying to reference right now. Uh, I included an article from Dr. R.C. Sproul called What uh, Does Coram Deo Mean? And essentially... It means what the psalmist is describing here in verse 168 when he says, for all my ways are before you. Quorum Deo is Latin for before the face of God. If you spent any time in church as a child and attended Sunday school, you might have sang a song in Sunday school class that went something like, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, ears, what you hear, hands, what you do, mind, what you think, all of the above, right? You'd sing all of those different things. Oh, be careful, oh, be careful, oh, be careful. And, and if you miss the last line, you miss the whole heart of the song. Because the last line is, for the Father... Number one, your heavenly Father, this one who begot you in love, who predestined you for salvation... He says, is looking down in what? In love. He's looking down in love. Be careful. Little eyes, ears, hands, mind, whatever. The problem is, is that so often we hear that with guilty hearts rather than forgiven ones. And so the prospect of God looking down on us is not so that He can love us, but so that He can see the, all the wrong things that we're doing. But instead, that song was meant to uh, encourage little ones in the idea of Coram Deo, that all that we do and say and think in our lives is done and lived before the face of God. Not a God who wants to condemn you, but a God who loves you, who gave up His own Son for you to die on the cross for your sins. And if He did not withhold His only begotten Son, is there anything else 
that He will withhold from you? The Scriptures say, no, there is not. And so to live before the face of God is not to live, therefore, in fear of a God who's looking down on you to zap you, but rather as a child who wants to be seen by their father trying to do what is right and having that father celebrate over them uh, even when sometimes things are not done perfectly, but rather is delighted that their child is trying uh, to do what He's commanded them to do. We're going to get to why that can be a reality here in just a moment. So it's not merely external obedience, but it's an inward obedience overflowing from love. I love Your rules exceedingly. I love them exceedingly. Your testimonies exceedingly. But how can I do this? I can only do this if at first my heart has been transformed. First to love God Himself and then to love His Word. Amen? I want to just briefly look at this last stanza, verses 169 through 176. I want you to see that it's a series of cries, of petitions to the Lord with commitments mingled in. And then we'll spend some time looking at the last verse. Verse 176. See all of these cries. Here we come to the end. And this is what's interesting, isn't it? That no matter how much time you've spent in your life as a Christian, it never fails to surprise that you're really not as far along as you thought that you should have been. After nearly 40 years of loving God and wanting to obey Him, I would think that I would be a lot more sanctified than I am. Here's the problem with that. I often then convince myself that God loves that guy that I think I should be more than the me that I really am right now today. And this is why. Because I love that guy more than I love the me that I am right now today. But there should be great hope for us as we look at the end of Psalm 119, which is presumably, presumably written at the end of the psalmist's life. And find what? The same story. That he wasn't as far along probably as he thought he should have been either. That we will never reach perfection this side of glory. But when Jesus comes, we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Not because God loves that transformed person more than He loves us, but because God loves us, He will bring that transformation to our lives as the greatest blessing from Christ's blood that we have ever received. And so here at the end, of Psalm 119, we should not come and be like, come on, psalmist. You didn't get your act together. What's wrong with you? Instead, we should find great comfort 
that we are in great company. As here, even still, he is letting his cry come before the Lord. You know, there's something about a cry. It cannot be done inwardly. You can hurt inwardly, but you can only cry outwardly. It has to be heard. And here the psalmist allows the noise of his pain to come out in cries that can be audible, can be heard. And he allows them to be elicited from his mouth to the Lord. I think as a man, that is probably a little more difficult for me to wrap my own mind around. Because so often we have been taught that we must keep it all inside. That we've got to you know, deal with things internally. We don't need to let those things come out and, and affect us externally. The Scripture tells us something very interesting. It says that we have not because we've asked not. And there's something to be said when the invitation of God is given to us to make our requests known to God. It's an interesting thing to say. How do you make your requests known to the person who already knows everything? That, that word from Scripture, I believe, is given to men like me to say, you are being invited to open your mouth. And to let that cry come out. Not in complaining. Not in wallowing in misery to every Tom, Dick, and Harry on the side of the road. But rather to bring that cry to the one person who is able to actually do something about it. Who also loves you. Who made you. And has invited you to come. And so we hear now the psalmist setting aside decorum because he lives quorum Deo before the face of the Lord and he lets his cry come out of his mouth. And what does he cry out for? Verse 169, he asks the Lord for understanding. Give me understanding. Verse 170, deliver me. Verse 173, be ready to help me. Verse 174, I'm still crying out for salvation. The psalmist said, verse 175, let my soul live. Again, verse 175, let your rules help me. And verse 176, that God Himself would seek Him when He goes astray. Here, again, presumably, even at the end of his life, the psalmist is still needy for God's grace to give him understanding. No matter how long he's lived, his ship of wisdom has not come in in such a way that he does not still rely on God and His Word for wisdom and understanding. He still needs deliverance. He still needs help. He still needs the salvation of the Lord. And this is something that we need to understand that we do not come to Christ and He saves us once upon a time and that's all the saving that we ever need and now it's up to us to figure everything out in our lives for the rest 
of our lives. No, 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 no. God saves us in justification, but then daily through sanctification, He is saving us over and 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 over again. So that we can say to Him, God, I need You to save me in this. Why? Because my flesh is clawing at me and I know my flesh wants this, that, this thing, that idea, these, these things to happen, these circumstances. God, I need You to come and save me in this moment. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to assign more value to God and His Word than to the enemy. I need God to actually come and do that inside of my heart. God, save me. I still need the salvation of the Lord. Not in the sense like I'm going to hell, but in the sense that I need to be delivered from the passions of my own flesh, from the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, from the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are things that each and every one of us are still battling as long as we live in this mortal body. And so, the psalmist allows his cry to come up before the Lord. And with that cry, he renews commitments. Verse 171, that his lips will pour forth praise. He's not going to allow, even though he's still in need, he's not going to allow his need to stop his mouth. But he's going to pour forth his praise to God. His tongue to sing. Verse 172. Verse 173, that he renews his commitment to choose God's precepts. Verse 174, to delight in God's law. And verse 176, that he would not forget the commands of God. So here he is, even at the end of his life, presumably, like a lost lamb in need of the saving grace of a good and mighty shepherd. I was, uh, I think I was four or five years old when I saw something that would, uh, has and I presume will stick with me for the rest of my life. I was invited by my Uncle Bill to go with him at the time he was managing a sheep ranch. And uh, that's where I first became acquainted with sheep uh, because we had to go out there on that day and we had to bring all the sheep in for shearing. And uh, I got to experience so much on that day of just how ridiculously uh, stubborn and stinky uh, sheep are. Uh, and it would forever stay with me because how often in Scripture are, are we related to sheep? And we often think of it in this cute... I saw almost nothing uh, cute and cuddly on that day. It was messy. It was stinky. It was smelly. They were stubborn. They were stupid. Um, it was when I saw that we were corralling them and they had to come in through this... Uh, a passageway that we had created with gates and they came into my uncle Bill, hey, watch this. And he takes this shepherd's staff and he sticks it down in front of the sheep and it jumps over and it jump and next one jumps over and the next one jump and then he took it away and they kept jumping and jumping and jumping. Uh it was it was incredible. But then we got to counting and as we counted we figured out that we had 
a missing lamb. And we got on to the three-wheelers at that time, and we went cruising out through all this pasture land. And uh, the interesting thing is there were these um, uh, sudden sort of ravines in the middle of this land. They weren't deep, but they were just like these cuts in the the pastures. Um, and I don't even know what it was. It was just you'd have grass and then suddenly it would drop off and there were these narrow um, sort of ravines through the past, uh, through the pastures. And as we went out, we'd go and we'd stop and he'd turn off the engine and we'd listen. And pretty soon we heard this bleeding of this lamb that had fallen down in to uh, one of these ravines. And, and so we got to go out on that day and after hearing the cry of the lamb, we found it and rescued it out of this ravine, brought it back into the fold and restored its place of safety and security with the rest of the flock and with its mother. And um, this is what we see here. The psalmist, even at the end of his life, is still that bleeding lamb in need of the saving grace of a good and mighty shepherd. And beloved, we have a good and mighty shepherd in Christ Jesus. And He is able to save. And there is no ravine that is too deep or too wide. There is no depth to which you can fall that you are beyond the reach of His grace. He is able to come and to rescue you. And we can have every assurance that He rescued the psalmist. That we'll be able to greet Him one day in glory. And know that not only His, but our salvation has been made complete. Amen? This is why Psalm 119, though over and over and over and over again, it elevates and praises God's law, yet it is a testimony over and over and over again to us of His grace. You see, if we come to Psalm 119 to be justified in our own works, we will be sorely ill-abused. Because all we will find there is the just requirement of God's law and our inability to keep it perfectly. And so then, Psalm 119 would only serve to do what the law itself does. Expose us for the hypocrites that we are. Unable to do or to keep the law and the commandments, or even want to keep the commandments to the degree that we ought or must in order to earn the well-done, good and faithful servant. But, if we embrace the truth of the Gospel, that all that must be done has already been done for us and in our place by the One, the only one 
who perfectly embodies all that we have read and studied in Psalm 119. Namely, Jesus Christ, the Son, who alone is the Blessed One of Psalm 1, the perfect Son of God and Son of Man, who suffered all that we might gain the blessedness that He earned as a reward for His faithfulness and devotion. Then, and only then, May we come to Psalm 119 and find life instead of death. Because we come to it not asking it to justify us, but having already been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, our sins, past, present, and future, dealt with and paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ, then we can come to Psalm 119 and ask God by His Spirit and in His love to excite our affections for His Word, His will, and for His law. That we could pursue the holiness, the purity, and the righteousness of the law without fear of our failings and shortcomings in attempting to keep it but rather we can pursue it out of love for our Heavenly Father and our faithful Savior wanting to be made like them and to reflect their image more faithfully each and every day. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Out of love. Out of joy. Out of hope. Out of peace. Out of rest. Because we've already found the salvation of God through Christ Jesus. And as we hunger and thirst more and more for righteousness, not that we may then be approved because of what we have done, but because we know that we belong to God, then we are all the more affirmed in our own faith that God is at work in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. When you find yourself reading Psalm 119 and hearing the psalmist say, oh, how I love your law. And there's something in your heart that says, oh, oh, but I don't love God's law that way. I wish that I did. Beloved, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not for you to be condemned, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is there so that you might lift up a cry to the Lord to say, Oh God, give me that kind of love for your law. When you read how the psalmist is committed, I will renew my commitment to your testimonies. I'll lift up praise to you seven times a day. And you say, Oh God, I don't know if I even praise you three times a day. It's not there for you to be condemned, but to lift up your cry and say, God, help me then to praise you more than I do today. Beloved, if you have that in your heart, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that should not then cause you to go, oh, I'm just a miserable wretch, but to say, oh, how God has loved me and given His Spirit to me and that hunger and that thirst for righteousness that you have not yet attained is evidence of that and you should be affirmed in your faith that God is at work in your heart by His Holy Spirit. Amen. As we come to Psalm 119 or any passage of Scripture, really, because this isn't true only of Psalm 119, we find our hearts desiring to be made more holy, to grow in the areas where we see we do not live up to the standard and our affections are stirred up and excited and our motivation 
to pursue that goal is stirred up and excited so that like Paul in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, we can say, forgetting what is behind, we press on towards the upward call of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones came to the same conclusion in his studies in the Sermon on the Mount, which is really Jesus' own exposition of the law of God. Listen to what he says. We are conscious, conscious of the fact that He, God, is dealing with us, that His Spirit is working within us, revealing to us our shortcomings and imperfections, creating longings and aspirations within us, working in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Above all, in the midst of life, with all of its trials and problems and tests, indeed amidst all the uncertainties of life in this uncertain age and the certain fact of death and the final judgment, we can say with the Apostle Paul, for the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. 2 Timothy 1.12 He ended his book by saying this, quoting from 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Beloved, what a tremendous place to be in. And may God, by His grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, sanctify us all to that place where our constant meditation is our love for His, for Him, Himself, for His Word, for His law, and for His will. If only our hearts could truly know and grasp how gracious God's law is and how wonderfully suited for our joy He has made it because it is an expression of His own character and nature, the very character and nature of Jesus Christ in whose image the Holy Spirit is conforming us in day after day as we are changed from one degree of glory to another by focusing our eyes on Him. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we love You. We do love You. And we praise You for Your Word, for Your will, for Your law, for the Holy Scriptures that we have read today. And we ask that You, by Your Spirit, would have Your way with us in such a way that You would bring submission where there is rebellion, that You would bring conviction, God, where there has been apathy, that, Lord, You would bring motivation where there has been nothing at all to compel us to live our lives before Your face, not out of fear, but out of love, out of a desire of a son or a daughter of God to please their Heavenly Father because we love You knowing that You loved us first. Help us in this, we pray, even as we sing these words now back to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.